Amen. Thank you, Archie. Does anyone else cringe or think that Archie has misspoken when he refers to me as the senior pastor? <laughs> that's taking some getting used to in my life. I'm like, no, Archie, that's you. But no, actually, um, that is correct, and we're just over two months now that it's been my privilege to serve in that capacity at Greenwood Presbyterian Church. Uh, it is an honor, it's a great privilege, and we get to do it outdoors for some number of weeks. And we're thankful for this morning. The weather really is, is wonderful for July, and we have a nice breeze. We're thankful for all these things, and these are memories that we won't forget and that our children won't forget when we worshiped outdoors together. So let's enjoy that and the truth of it. We're in the midst of a series I've been sharing with you for several weeks while we're outdoors, considering the hymns of the church, the songs of the church, and most importantly, the gospel truth within the songs that we sing. And I can't underscore that enough that I would hope that all of us would see that our appetite for singing together is more than a tune, more than a memory of a tune of long ago, but a truth wrapped within music that encourages your heart in the midst of a week, in the midst of storms in life, in the midst of the joys of life, that God's truth is buried in your heart because of the things that we're singing together Sinclair Ferguson says this on that subject regarding the church's music and how in our contemporary culture, for many it's drifted from gospel truth, and he calls us to return to emphasize the very thing we're doing. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, if you listen carefully to the church's music, you can hear the loss of focus on the gospel in our songs. This is not a comment on musical style or tastes, but simply an observation about the lyrical content of much that is being sung in churches today. In many cases, congregations unwittingly have begun to sing about themselves and how they are feeling rather than about God and His glory. And that's a wonderful summary of some of what we're trying to emphasize in this series is we want music to be something worth singing about, something worth remembering, that what we do in church and in worship ought to be different, and it ought to remind us of the beauty and the wonder of Christ and of the gospel. And so this morning, we're actually going back in time, and we're going to grab a hymn that, again, is probably unfamiliar to many of you, it's a hymn from the 1700s, and it's been retuned by indelible grace. So the language, I want you to see as we get to it, that the language and the theological truth of it really is profound. It's simple, but it's profound. But before we get into the sermon and get to that hymn, I want to make one more comment. You know, just because something was from the 1700s doesn't make it good. And you might think, because a lot of the hymns that we're singing and underscoring are so old, that we just equate anything old as good. And that's not true. 
neither is everything new bad. And we've sung some contemporary hymns, some newer hymns. We're trying to actually weave in some of old and some of new so that we can see together that the church historically has always sung about gospel truth. And the church sings best when it sings gospel truth. So this morning, we'll reach back in time to the, to the late 1700s and grab what really is a gem, lyrically, of a hymn. And you'll see that the truth of it is buried in God's Word. This morning, we're going to emphasize Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. These are familiar words to many of you. We use these in our worship service frequently. But my hope is this morning, you might hear with fresh and new ears the beautiful and simple gospel truth in this very familiar passage. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray together that God would help us understand. Lord, when we open your word, you have always promised your church that your spirit will be present, and that your spirit alone has the power to open our eyes and to unstop our ears and to warm our hearts, Lord, that you would make your truth known. That's our prayer together as a church family. So, Lord, would you do those things? We ask and we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of years ago, <clears throat> my wife, Marie, came into the house, and she had done the routine of going down to the mailbox at the end of the driveway and retrieving the mail. And she came into the house and she announced, I got an invitation. And I said, an invitation to what? And she said, I got an invitation to a party. And I said, you got an invitation to what kind of party? And as the story revealed, the invitation had come from someone that, was local, but that we really hadn't seen or talked to in 10 years. And I thought, huh, suddenly an invitation to a party. I wonder what's going on. And as the invitation and its contents were revealed, it was one of those parties. It was an invite to one of those parties that you're familiar with. You know, the kind of party that someone hosts for someone else to invite all of their friends to come to and to bring their checkbook because there would be Tupperware and different things for sale. I don't even remember what all it was. But it was a sales party, right? You're invited to come and bring your checkbook and write a check, which is no party at all. Can, can all the dads and husbands be honest? That is no party at all. And we fall for these things, and we have to do these things. The same thing is true with our children. A child will have a, have a birthday and have a birthday party. And the parent will say, well, do you want a, a big party or a small party? No, I want a big party. And I want to invite all my friends. Now, why is that? 
because the friends typically bring gifts to the party. And so that's the nature of invitations in this life. That's the nature of our invitations, that there's always something in it for us. And that makes an invitation in this life not so sincere. As a matter of fact, it can make some of us suspicious. It can make some of us a bit cynical about invitations to parties, can it? So as you bring that cynicism and that suspicion of an invitation, bring it to Jesus this morning. Because Jesus is offering an invitation to the people around him, to all within the sound of his voice. And anytime there's an invitation, you and I are suspecting it's, it's going to have a catch. It's not going to ultimately be good. Not so with Jesus. That's what makes his invitation so unique, so divine. I want you to hear his invitation this morning. I have three simple points. We try to be brief in the sun. The three points are these. Jesus offers an invitation to his people to come to me. Secondly, Jesus offers rest for the soul. And then thirdly, Jesus offers for us to trade our yokes for his. That's his invitation. An invitation to come, an invitation to find rest for your souls, and to exchange your yoke for the one he will give you instead. And that, my friends, is the gospel. Let's consider these points briefly. First, Jesus offers an invitation Come to me, he says to his people. He is the invitation. But his invitation, unlike our worldly invitations, it's hearty, it's from the heart, and it's sincere. It's from God himself, God the Heavenly Father, through God the Son. It is a hearty and sincere invitation. And when you find that invitation to be true, you can lay your suspicions down. Because he proves himself to be true. He proves himself to be faithful. Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. That's an invitation for the weary and the heavy laden. His invitation also comes to those, this is important, who know their need for it. They know they're heavy laden. They know that they're burdened. They have to know their predicament before they'd ever want to come to this invitation to this God-man. Rob Rayburn, a pastor, now retired in Tacoma, Washington, someone that I've benefited through the years. I enjoy reading him, listening to him. He says this on this subject. He says, Jesus tells us that salvation does not begin in comfort. It begins in exhaustion and it's for those desperate for rest the Lord's first and greatest act of God in revealing himself to a person is his making that person feel their profound need for gospel relief did you hear that salvation coming to faith in Christ it begins with discomfort it begins with a lack of rest and knowing that you are not a person at peace 
or at rest. As someone else has put it, you have to experience the bad news before you will understand the good news. It begins with admitting that you're an exhausted person, truly exhausted in all of your parts and all of your being. That's how salvation, that's how good news begins, is admitting and confessing that you are at the end of your ability to pretend anymore that you have it all together or to think that I got this, right? We've talked about this before. That's the great lie of our culture, and many in the church are falling for it, that I got this. Salvation begins with admitting and confessing, I can't get this. I can't do this. I need another. I need someone else. I need a redeemer. I need a savior. And so Jesus' invitation to come to me, it's hearty, it's sincere, and you have to know that you need it before you'll ever respond to it. And then thirdly, and interestingly, his invitation provokes the comfortable. It provokes the religiously comfortable. It provokes the overachievers who think that they have this. And in this way, never mind the falling stands. In this way, Jesus is provoking, provoking, an argument. He's provoking an argument with the religious. They are within the hearing of what he's saying, and they don't like it. And he knows that they don't like it, but he says it anyway. He's willing to provoke this fight. He's willing to provoke this tension because it is gospel truth that is worth fighting about. So consider that. Uh, Another quote, this is from actually from Joseph Hart, who's one of our hymn writers. Uh, he wrote, Come Ye Sinners. We considered him uh, a while ago. He says this, What comfort can a Savior bring to those who have never felt their woe? Listen to that. What comfort can a Savior bring to those who've never felt their woe? To those that don't know they need healing. They don't hurt. What comfort can a Savior bring to them? And so God first has to make us uncomfortable before he will bring gospel comfort. And we should each think about our lives right now because we love our comfort. We don't want to be uncomfortable. But it's always through crisis. It's always through hardship. It's through disappointment and suffering in this life that God gets our attention with his good news. Otherwise, why would we be interested in what he offers? And that gives us a reason to celebrate our discomforts. That gives us reason to find joy in the midst of our sorrows. Because God is at work. It's through those disappointments, hardships, and sufferings that God is at work in this world. We don't wish for suffering, but God uses it for our good. That is the provoking invitation of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus offers, what he offers us in this invitation is rest for our souls. He says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. 
Now, we need to understand this. This is at the heart of Jesus' invitation. The kind of rest that we most know is physical rest, emotional rest, mental rest, social rest. We, when we engage in something physical, we know what it is to be tired. If you work outside in this heat on the weekend, you spend time out in the yard, you give it a little bit of time, and you're exhausted, and you want to go in to the cool and have water and rest. You know that you can't keep going in the heat and at the pace for very long. And so we understand physical rest. Uh, those of you who are students or, or who have been students or who are in mentally taxing jobs, you know what it is to be mentally tired. Sometimes you just got to get up and walk away. Quit thinking, right? Go cut the grass. Sit on that mower and do that marvelous, mindless activity that we can recover our minds with, right? That's how I am. I love it. We know what it is to be physically tired and to get rest, to get a mental rest, even socially. Some of you who are introverts, if you're around a lot of people for a while, you're like, okay, it's time to step away. I'm tired of being with people. I need to rest. That's the kind of rest we most no, we're most familiar with those kinds of rests. Sleep is the kind of rest that most of us think of immediately. I know that in our family we have tried to find all kinds of ways to assist our sleep, to assist our rest. And your family's probably no different. You have blackout curtains in your bedroom, or you have... Uh, the weighted blanket, which I discovered in the past few weeks, the weighted blanket, which assists you in calm rest. Or maybe it's white noise in the background or turning a fan on in the background. You have found ways to try to help yourself rest to sleep physically, right? I did a wedding for a couple, many years ago, more than 15 years ago. And in the premarital counseling the guy told me, he said, well, I have this habit to help me rest, and I'm worried about how it's going to affect my marriage. And I said, well, what's the habit? And he said, well, I sleep with a hairdryer on. You sleep with a hairdryer on? Isn't that a fire hazard? He said, yes, it is. So I have to sleep on the bathroom floor. This is a true story. I said, so you sleep with a hairdryer on by your head on the cold, hard bathroom floor. I said, I think this is going to be a problem in your marriage. It's a true story. He, uh, he always bought his hairdryers at Walmart because they have a 30-day return policy, and he would go through a hairdryer a month because no hairdryer is meant to be running for seven or eight hours at a time, right? But we will do crazy things to try to promote rest, to try to help us sleep. And those are the kinds of rests we're most familiar with, but those are not primarily the kinds of rest that Jesus is talking about. I think they are related, but primarily the kind of rest that Jesus' invitation is speaking to is rest for the soul. It's spiritual rest. Now that affects us physically and emotionally and mentally and socially. 
rest of the soul will affect the whole person and all of its parts. And that is the ultimate rest that Jesus is offering us. He's offering us a spiritual rest. The spirit, the center of a person, the center of who he is that affects the whole person and all of our parts. That's what Jesus is talking about. He says that's the kind of, of rest you most need to be familiar with. It's essential for you to know spiritual rest. Thirdly, Jesus says this. Jesus offers, in order to experience that spiritual rest that he invites us to, he says, you need to trade in your yoke and take on my yoke. Well, what is that? Y-O-K-E. I may have misspelled it on the slideshow. I think I may have put Y-O-L-K. It's not a yoke, not an egg yoke. It's a yoke. Y-O-K-E. What is a yoke? Well, you've seen pictures of this or you've seen it in film. Quite simply, a yoke is a heavy wooden beam that would be put on the necks or on the shoulders of beasts of burden, large animals like oxen or cattle. And by putting a yoke on a pair of cattle or a pair of oxen, you would now have what was called a team. You could have teamwork. You could double your horsepower. Right? You would harness all of, all of that energy and be able to use it together in one direction, usually for agricultural purposes. And Jesus said that heavy beam that is upon the oxen, that wears them out in the heat of the sun, it's a heavy burden. You are carrying a heavy, wearying burden. Let me take that burden from you, and you put on my yoke, he says. And he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And that should be heard as good news. He uses that imagery to say to a people who were oppressed and overwhelmed in life and by their religious leaders, he used that as good news to say, let me take off of you everything that overwhelms you and I'll put it on me. And I'll trade and give you my yoke. I'll give you my light and easy burden. Now what he's really saying here comes up again in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. He targets the religious again. This is the ultimate audience that he's speaking to. Listen to what he says in those verses. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. Listen. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You see how he's connecting the dots here? He's saying, my people are oppressed. They're being given all these religious things to do. They're being shown no grace and no mercy. But God the Father has sent God the Son 
to bring grace and mercy and to take the burden off of overwhelmed people and to put it on himself and to exchange and give them a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light. That is one of the great exchanges in Scripture that he uses. Elsewhere, it, it, he speaks of, uh, the Scriptures speak of taking our filthy garments and he puts those on himself. And he takes his righteous, pure garment and puts it on us. It's the great exchange spoken of in Scripture in various ways. That's the invitation of Jesus. That's what he's offering you. That's what he has offered you. It's what he continues to offer you. And this morning as you hear it, and from these familiar words of Matthew chapter 11, it is so easy to hear it and be like, okay, I know that. I know that already. I've heard it all my life. But that's where we have to hear it fresh and new. Because the truth is this. You are yoked to something. You are carrying a burden of something that is greater than you can bear. And it may feel like a physical burden. It might be a fear of sickness. It might be a fear of what's coming in the future or what may not be coming in the future. It may be any number of things, but in this life, you and I quickly are yoked to things. And in that way, Jesus' invitation is not one time. It is a lifetime invitation because we continually yoke ourselves to heavy burdens. People, places, and things. We yoke ourselves to these. And so whether you've come to Jesus or you need to come to Jesus again, or if you come to Jesus for the first time, he always says, trade yokes with me. Come to me. Look to me. Trade yokes. And so this morning, I want you to hear it as simple as that. Tonight, or excuse me, this morning is an invitation to trade your yoke. Whatever it is that is overwhelming you physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, Jesus says, I'll take that from you. Take my light and easy burden. Whatever your fear, whatever your care, whatever your circumstance, would you trade yokes with me? That's the invitation of Jesus. My fear in our southern Bible Belt culture is that we're so familiar with these words and these concepts that we fail to engage them or to engage them again. When the invitation is to come, to taste and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says. Come, taste and see that, that this invitation is legitimate. Take your suspicion, take your cynicism, and cash it in for a light and easy yoke. My fear is that we're not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good in that way. That we've gotten too familiar with it because we're around it all the time. I was reminded this week in preparing for this of a video I'd seen years ago. And I encourage all of you to try to go see this. But it's, it's posted on YouTube. And I'll close with this. But it is from the Ivory Coast in West Africa. And it's a video of a cocoa bean plantation where they took a camera in and they took a man in to interview essentially the slaves 
who are harvesting cocoa beans and drying cocoa beans, living in a poor village, not even making pennies on the dollar of the value of their product. And they took a camera crew in to interview these middle-aged men who had been harvesting cocoa beans all of their life since they were big enough to go out and to help in the fields and in the jungle. And they interviewed these men and they said, how long have you been harvesting cocoa beans? And they're like, all of our life. They've done it. That's all we know. And then the reporter asked them, do you know what cocoa beans are used for? And he said, I have no idea what cocoa beans are used for. I just know that the white man likes them. And we get money for cocoa beans. And it's our only hope of an income. And then the reporter, and this is what you need to watch on YouTube. The reporter takes out of his pocket a chocolate bar. And he says, have you ever heard of chocolate? And the man says, what's chocolate? And he opens up the wrapper and he breaks off a piece. And he says, this is what the cocoa bean can make with sugar and with cream. And he gives it to the man. And the man puts chocolate in his mouth for the very first time. And his, his eyes light up. And he smiles with the few teeth that he has. And he experiences the joy of the cocoa bean, if we can call it that. He's never tasted chocolate before. And his eyes light up. He's like, I had no idea. And then they go and they get other villagers, other cocoa bean farmers, and they start breaking off pieces and sharing it. You've got to try this chocolate. This is chocolate. This is what the cocoa bean makes. And they break it off. They pass it around. They make sure that the little children get the biggest pieces. And it's a beautiful story when you put it all together in this way. These men had been around cocoa beans all their life. They understood the cocoa bean. They knew how to dry it, how to wrap it in banana leaves to speed up its fermentation. But they had never experienced the cocoa bean and what it could do. The power of the cocoa bean. It's a powerful and beautiful story. It's worth your seeing. But with this gospel truth in mind, I fear that many of us have been all around the gospel, singing about it, hearing about it, maybe even talking about it, coming to church, maybe even in a small group. But have you experienced the beauty and the power of the gospel? Or are you just around it and just familiar with it? And if you have experienced it, have you had the joy in your own heart that has overflowed just like the man taking the chocolate out and sharing it with someone else. Has any part of you made sure that the people around you have experienced the power and the beauty and the wonder of the gospel? You know, the truth is sometimes I think in my own life I go around with the chocolate bar in my pocket and I'm not sharing it, saving it for later. It's not how we're to be with the gospel. It's not how we're supposed to be with this invitation of Jesus. Familiar words we hear, we sing over and over again. But that God could break in and warm our hearts. That we would want the people around us to know, come to Jesus, look to Jesus, come to Him again and again and again. That is the sum of the Christian life. A closing quote is from 
Dane Ortland. Two quotes from his book. It's a newer book called Gentle and Lowly, which is the language of this passage. Listen to what he says. For those who fear they have squandered their last hope of mercy, know this, Jesus pours out more. For God is rich in mercy. The Bible says that God is not tight-fisted with mercy. He is open-handed. He's not frugal, but he is lavish. He's not poor, but he's rich. And so if you feel that you've squandered your last hope for mercy, you've made that dumb mistake one time too many, surely God has no mercy left for me. I think Dane Ortland is right, and this passage is right. Jesus is gentle and lowly, and he says, come to me. Come to me. Let me take your yoke. Let me take your burden. Swap yokes with me. And then the last quote from Dane Ortland, simple but good, he says this. The Christian life boils down to two simple steps to remember. All right, you should be suspicious. Who reduces the Christian life to two simple steps, right? Well, listen to what he says. Two simple steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, repeat step one. Step one, go to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Step two, repeat step one. That's the sum of the Christian life. If you're a new Christian, if you're an old Christian, if you're considering the Christian faith and you don't know what it's about, it's a people who continually come to Jesus because we've yoked ourselves with the wrong people, places, and things. And Jesus always is willing to trade yokes with us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, would you work beautifully in our hearts and minds today and this week to think about these truths. And may our hymn though written in the 1700s, may it call us to look to Jesus, to come to Jesus. Lord, would you give us something worth thinking about, something worth talking about, something worth singing about as the gospel truth works its way in our hearts, in our lives, and in our families. We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.